Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun, the podcast where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Theresa May was confronted with another political headache this week after a group of Eurosceptic, Conservative and Democratic Unionist Party politicians threatened to vote against a final Brexit withdrawal deal over plans to keep the UK in the EU's common fisheries policy until 2020. They were furious that the government had accepted EU demands to keep British fishermen's share of the total catch unchanged during the post-Brexit transition period. A big appeal of Brexit for coastal communities around the UK was the promise that they would take back control of the seas around our coasts and restore fishing rights perceived to have been stolen by our European neighbours. Membership of the European Union has been held responsible for a drastic decline in the fishing industry, most notably in Scotland and northeastern England. But the exit negotiations may result in a rather messier outcome, as fisheries are used as a bargaining chip in the broader UK-EU talks. On the line to discuss this is Muir Dickey, our Scotland correspondent, Chris Tye, our Northeast correspondent, and with me in the studio is James Blitz, our public policy editor. Muir, if I could start with you, Scotland has over 60% of British waters and its fishermen land more than half of the UK's catch by weight and value. How has the Scottish industry been affected by EU membership in the 45 years since we joined? Well, it depends very much on who you ask. I think very much the majority view among fishermen, especially on the eastern coast of Scotland, and some often very strongly expressed opinion that the EU membership has been disastrous for their industry. They say that it's entrenched foreign access to what they would now see as very much their own national waters, and that the EU imposed rules that they feel are unnecessarily restrictive, which they were often required to follow more strictly than other EU nations' fleets. A very common resentment has been expressed to me in the past uh, by fishermen is that the common fisheries policy negotiations often being chaired by landlocked EU member nations, which they feel is emblematic of the kind of way in which a bad policy has been imposed on them. But I think another argument made generally much more quietly is that membership of the EU has been associated with overdue and more effective management of fish stocks than the UK managed before it was a member. And there have been EU policies that have softened the exit of fishermen from an industry that was already in steep decline before the UK joined the European community. And a lot of the loss of jobs that's often blamed on the EU could perhaps more accurately be blamed on the increased efficiency. I mean, some of the fishing boats that are now used are quite capable of scooping up enormous amounts of fish from the sea with relatively few people. It's also true that on the west coast of Scotland, many fishermen have a different view. For them, the EU has been an important way of smoothing access to markets, particularly in France and Spain, which put a much higher value on their delicious crabs and langoustines and lobsters. And they remain very reliant on being able to ship their produce to those markets. Nowadays, it can be sometimes even on a beautiful west coast fishing village, you can find it difficult to get hold of a nice crab because they're so quickly put on lorries and shipped live all the way down to Spain. It's also the case of food processors needing EU workers to maintain their businesses in what are often areas where it's quite difficult to get hold of particularly seasonal labour. 
If I can just return to the stocks issue, the fish stocks issue for a second, I think it's fair to say that cod is Britain's best loved fish, but its stocks were depleted almost to the point of extinction in the early 2000s. Is that looking better or has the EU made a difference to this? Very much better. Now, who should get the credit again would be controversial. A couple of years ago, I was up in Peterhead and being told by a fisherman fresh off his trawler that the CFP was all wrong because he was being restricted from fishing cod at that point. And he said, there's enough cod in the water, you can walk across the waves without getting your feet wet. I think that was an element of fishermen's exaggeration. But last year, the Marine Stewardship Council did indeed decide that North Sea cod had become a sustainable catch, which is a remarkable recovery. Now, I think you could say that that's an example of the kind of multinational agreement based on scientific research to limit catches that has been at the core of the common fisheries policy of the EU. I think you could also, and many Scottish fishermen would say, that they've also played a role in trying to manage those stocks, declaring areas not to be fished and being restrained in the way that they catch fish. And sometimes they say that the other EU member boats in their waters are much less rigorous about playing by the rules. So they would certainly not want to give the EU all the credit. So what advantages are Scottish fishermen then hoping to see from our departure from the EU? But what they would love to see is an end or at least a dramatic restriction of the access to what are now seen as UK waters of other EU fleets. And they would want to see a more sympathetic policy, more responsive to their views of what catches are sustainable and more uniform oversight, everybody playing by the same set of rules in the same sort of way. That's what they'd love to see. I think there are also, though, as mentioned, many fishermen who would be concerned if departure from the EU made access to markets in the EU more difficult or introduced any difficulty or friction in shipping their catches to those markets. So what they, I suppose, an ideal world, the one in which the UK regains complete control of its waters, but retains complete access to the EU market. Now, turning to you, James, what has the government been saying about UK fishing rights and how does this differ from what our European partners are seeking? Well, as Muir has implied, what the government wants to do is to leave the common fisheries policy. And broadly speaking, it is in line with what Muir was saying, which is that you have to restrict the fishing rights of the European Union inside British waters. And you could argue, if you look at the figures, that they have a point. I mean, the value of fish that was landed by the UK in other EU waters in 2014 was roughly £100 million in that year. The value of fish landed by European Union vessels in British waters was four times that, £400 million. So the EU is quite extraordinarily reliant on fishing in Scottish and English waters. And what the government is saying is, we don't want to stop them having that access under a new regime, we would continue to want to allow the Europeans to fish, but not on the same scale that they are doing. And that is the broad argument that they are making. The Europeans are obviously accepting that they're going to have to get into a negotiation about that. The problem for the British is that there's a number of factors that work against them. First of all, although the Scottish fleet 
traditionally fishers in UK waters. The English fleet is very reliant on fishing in Irish, French and Norwegian waters. So those fleets are going to continue to want to have access to European Union waters. We're also, as a country, big consumers of Norwegian card. We're going to want to keep on consuming that card. And therefore, if we're going to do that, we have to accept that the Norwegians allow us to fish in their waters as part of a complex deal in which they can fish in European waters. So there are issues there. And the other factor is that although we catch an enormous amount of fish, we also sell a great deal of that fish to the European Union. We the British. So if we want to continue doing that and not face tariffs, we've got to recognise the need for a deal. But there is one issue above all, which is the real problem for fishermen in Scotland and England here, which is that fishing is not strategically important. And the great fear of the fishermen in this country is that when it comes to the final part of the deal that we have to negotiate with the EU, Mrs May is basically going to trade in fishing rights so that she can get better access to financial services. And most people think that somewhere along the line, that's where we're going to end up. It's all very well going on at the moment, talking about leaving the CFP, but it's a card in the end. It's a good card the British have, and it's a card they're going to have to play. Now, overall, can we just go backwards rather than looking to the future? Overall, has the EU's common fisheries policy, which was adopted in 1983, been effective in its goal of protecting fish stocks? I think for many, many years, there were correct accusations that the CFP was not environmentally a good system. It encouraged a lot of overfishing. Michael Gove, the Environment Secretary and strong pro-Brexiter, has described it as being an environmental disaster, saying that it really reduces the sustainability of fish stocks. But I think a lot of people would also argue that there have been pretty substantial reforms led by the UK over recent years, which have actually led to a more sustainable fishing environment, both in the UK and in Europe. For example, implementing a phased ban on discarding perfectly edible fish. And DEFRA, the Department for Environment in the UK, has praised in recent years the reforms pushed through by the EU on that front. And I think Muir was referring to this earlier and with some of his examples from Scotland, that although there certainly was a problem a few years ago, reforms have made things a lot better. Chris, if I can turn to you, what's been the experience of the fishing community in your region of EU membership? I think frustrating, in a word, on various levels. In the early years, the EU encouraged building of fleets and more fishing, and then it threw that policy into reverse to preserve fish stocks, so that caused a lot of practical difficulties. On the day-to-day level, um, fishermen have found the EU extremely bureaucratic. One fisherman I spoke to said all the cliches fit for incompetence, mismanagement and unaccountability. They've complained that it's tried to micromanage things down to the level even of mesh sizes of nets. The slightly bigger picture is the fact that for the fishing community, what they have seen is that under EU quotas, the other 27 countries take four times as much fish by value from UK waters as the UK takes from theirs. And fishing communities see that as a very unfair imbalance. They've also seen big contraction in the industry and whilst it clearly does account for a very small share of UK GDP, 
It also has a strong identity, a strong sense of family tradition. So in the places where fishing matters, it matters a lot. They've seen the UK's fishing fleet decline while other countries have prospered, and it's made them annoyed. In northeast England, for example, from the Scottish border to Bridlington, the number of fishing vessels has dropped from about 800 to 200 over the last 40 years. And further south, Hull now has just a handful of deep-sea trawlers which continue fishing now as far away as Greenland and Canada. Not all of this contraction can be laid at the door of the EU, but the UK's fishermen certainly wish that the UK was an independent coastal state, and that's why a great many of them voted for Brexit. So how are these people and the people in the industry where you are expecting the situation to change and how are they adapting? Well, one North Shields fisherman I was talking to who's been fishing for 50 years, who also voted for Brexit, told me that he was currently mildly optimistic, but not wildly optimistic. And he said he was particularly worried at the posturing of politicians and rather distrustful of where we were heading. In terms of what they want, as Muir and James have already said, in an ideal world, they would want all the benefits and none of the rules and hindrances. But they are realists, though they are very nervous that they might be sold down the river by politicians on this one. How much they need access to European markets depends on what they fish, which in turn depends on where they are fishing. Hull's remaining deep-sea trawler fleet, which is a shadow of what it once was, fishes mostly for whitefish, and that's particularly popular with fish and chip shops around the UK. But there is a certain irony in this whole discussion that we export what we catch and we import what we eat. For a nation surrounded by sea, we're rather conservative in our fish tastes. We like white fish, cod and haddock. Many of us are rather suspicious of things like hake, which the Spanish love. So if you look at a port like North Shields, which is now England's premier port for nephrops, which we may know as Longustine, and also lands a lot of crab and lobster, it exports approaching 90% of what's landed to the EU. So clearly that market matters. I've been told that within 24 hours of a Longustine landing, at North Shields Fish Key, it can be on a French restaurant table. In terms of what the fishing community is doing, apart from holding their breath and worrying about what's going to happen with all the transitional negotiations, some people in the community here have begun to look at the possibility of markets in China, in Korea, and in Japan for their landings, but clearly that's not a quick fix. James, Britain exports about 75% of its catch to EU markets, as Chris and Muir have said. Doesn't this mean that it's in the interest of fishing communities here to have access to these markets, even if it means continuing to share more of their fisheries with EU vessels? 
Yes, that is an argument which uh, you can make pretty strongly. The bottom line is we export substantially more of our fish. You said about 75. I've seen figures about 66% by volume to the EU. By volume, the UK imported some 721,000 tonnes of fish in 2014. That's about 32% of that came from the EU. So we're exporting a great deal more than we're taking back. So we are very, very reliant on tariff-free trade continuing. So we don't want to have, as I said earlier, any kind of settlement, which means that we're very restrictive about allowing European vessels to come into our waters, and then they slap tariffs on us. That's not only bad in terms of fish exports, it's also generally bad for the fishing industry, because if we had to impose reciprocal tariffs, fish would obviously become much more expensive within the UK market. That wouldn't be good for the fish processing industry. And of course, we also rely on the EU exporting some of our fish to non-EU states as well as part of the overall accord. So we need the support of the EU to roll over some of those accords after we've left. So all in all, the difficulty for the British is it's all very well saying we want to restrict the amount which European fishermen can fish in our waters, but we've got a lot to lose in terms of the potential for tariffs if we take too restrictive an approach. Muir, what's your view on this question? I think it is very clear that continued access to the uh, EU markets without tariff and the smoothness of the border crossing is extremely important because live shellfish on the back of a truck are particularly vulnerable to the kind of delays that some people see as possible in the event of a hard or a chaotic Brexit at the borders. There's an interesting point here that Brexit is supposed to make fishermen happier but it has the potential to make some fishermen, at least, and lots of people associated with fish processing unhappy if it goes badly. And so the political cost of that could be very big. Chris, can I turn to you on this? Yes, I agree with everything Muir's just said. Of course, people do want access to markets and any sort of messy showdowns at ports would be really worrying for people with fresh food that can perish and might then be rendered unsaleable. But I think within fishing communities, there's also a feeling that there's got to be a trade-off here. At what price would access be granted? Certainly one or two people have said to me the UK was ambushed on fishing on the way into the EU in the 1970s, and they see UK fishing and what happens to it now as a litmus test for Brexit, and they don't want the politicians to sell them short this time round on the way out. Well, thank you for that. Well, that's all we have time for. So thank you, Chris Tai, Muir Dickey and James Blitz, and thank you for listening. We'll be back in a fortnight with another episode of Brexit Unspun. We hope you'll join us then, and in the meantime, please review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. If you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, you can also email us at brexitunspun at ft.com. Thank you. 
Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.